News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there seemed to be a lot of confusion yesterday afternoon when Prime Minister Trudeau said his government would be invoking the Emergencies Act. So let's get some clarity on what this means and how it could impact the disruption and the protests that we have been seeing. Abigail Beeman, our global national correspondent, joins us now from Ottawa. Morning, Abigail. Good morning. So what does this actually mean using the Emergencies Act? What is the Trudeau government doing here? Well, it means a few things. Uh, and as you said, there is, there is some confusion because we don't yet have all of the answers or all of the specifics. But uh, the prime minister was you know, clear about what it doesn't mean. He's, he does not intend to bring in the military or infringe on civil liberties, something that uh, you know is causing a lot of chatter. That's not what he says this is doing. What it does uh, allow the government to do uh, is uh, give police more tools to be able to do their job. And, and off the top, the prime minister is saying uh, that there are serious challenges to law enforcement's ability to effectively enforce the law. So it will allow the RCMP uh, to enforce municipal uh, bylaws as one example. Uh, Another uh, interesting move is it will allow the federal government, and we'll see how this works in practice, uh, to direct tow companies to tow the vehicles here. And that's one of the very, you know, practical or, or, or in the weeds logistical challenges. The city of Ottawa was having a lot of trouble getting tow companies to agree to move these vehicles for a number of reasons. So that's uh, in there as well. And then extremely significantly uh, is are the financial implications, the finance side of things here with the finance minister, Deputy Prime Minister Christopher Freeland saying this is about following the money. They're going to expand the anti-terrorism laws uh, and, and make any crowdfunding operation register with FinTrack, um, which, which you know, as uh, as in the in the weeds as that may sound, could actually have serious uh, implications, uh, as well as the you know freezing of corporate assets of, of truck companies uh, who have trucks here and suspending insurance. Those financial moves could be, uh, according to a number of national security experts and others, that could really be the thing uh, that tips this. Okay, so obviously there was a lot of confusion about like why weren't things being done such as the towing of the vehicles and just enforcing Mm -hmm. the bylaws. So is the city of Ottawa like are they going to use this now? How does this work? Yeah, so... There is a lot of confusion for, you know, where you are in BC, but right down to the average person that lives in Ottawa that wants to know, like, why more isn't being done here. It's incredibly frustrating for people who live uh, in and around the downtown core and not just the downtown. You know, there are secondary and other encampments in other parts of the city. It's certainly having a big impact. So for the city of Ottawa, it's perspective, you know, there's been a couple of developments at the municipal level. Um, the, the mayor tweeting on Sunday that he had reached a backroom deal effectively with the protesters to move some trucks out of the downtown core and re sorry out of the residential area and and put them on the hill and that did happen to a degree yesterday but you know the some one of the things we don't talk about it so much is that the the or the the, the leadership of the of the convoy is you know, there's there's a lot of different arms and moving parts and evolutions, and it seems to constantly change. And so there were conflicting messages to truckers and protesters about whether they should move. But yesterday afternoon, we did see some movement, uh, and and some trucks left some of the uh, streets in the in the in the downtown core where people do live, uh, and moved onto Parliament Hill. So now you have more trucks sandwiched right in front of Parliament Hill on Wellington Street, which is significant as well because you know it could make any potential towing operation more. Ch- 
challenging, but I think I'm getting off track your question about the city. No, no. They also um, succeeded in yesterday getting a court injunction uh, that will uh, allow them or, or give them, it gives them court powers to enforce um, some of these bylaws that are being ignored, things like idling and noise and illegal fires. And you might hear that and think, what is, what is she talking about? But I mean, protesters set up like bonfires in the middle of the street oh, wow. um, uh, to keep warm. It's been minus 20 uh, and, and, and you have uh, fireworks going off and it makes residents and other people extremely nervous because um, you have these fireworks and, and these fires, but you also have all of this fuel, right? So these trucks are right. constantly bringing in fuel, even though police are saying that that's, that's not allowed. So there are so many moving pieces here. Um, uh, we have we are expecting to hear from the city's mayor, uh, Jim Watson, later today. He had been tweeting um, yesterday about the injunction and that he was happy to see progress um, with the, the, the trucks that were moving off residential streets, but still a lot of questions here about what this all means uh, and what the next steps are. Okay, so I understand that Parliament, the Senate, will, will all have to vote yeah. on this. So is it going to pass? Does the prime minister have the buy-in? Right. So, and that's, that's conflicting as well. There are many people who say that this goes too far or, 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 or rather that the, that the, the threshold of the situation, the threshold for, for invoking the emergency act has not yet been met. Uh, we see that, uh, the, there are, the prime minister had to consult with premiers before he did this. We see that Ontario's premier, Doug Ford, strong supporter of this, came out uh, in support of this move. But we see a number of other premiers who are not in support of this move. Uh, Scott Moe tweeting last night, you know, a number of others, Jason Kenney saying uh, before uh, before um, the announcement was made that he would like it to not apply to Alberta uh, if, uh, uh, if the Emergencies Act was invoked. But as for what happens in the House and in terms of any vote, it looks like the NDP is on side uh, with, uh, with the Prime Minister's move. The Conservatives are saying that they need a little bit more time, or that's what they said last night, to uh, to take a look at this, but that in general uh, they are concerned that the Prime Minister is inflaming tensions uh, rather than uh, rather than, than calming things down. All right, interesting times. Abigail, hang in there. Thank you so much. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Now let's turn our attention to what is happening in Ukraine. There are some signs this morning that Russia has pulled back a little bit on the military standoff with Ukraine. For more on this and what else is happening, Reggie Giacchini joins us now, our Global News Washington correspondent. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. So what is the latest here? Is there a sign that they're backing down a little bit? Well, I mean, we don't know. We're t- we have to take Russia at their word if that is what the case is. Uh, the foreign minister of Russia, foreign minister of Spain, met up not all that long ago, and the Spanish foreign minister said, look, if we can get concrete proof that these troops are actually moving away, then sure, that is going to be excellent news, quote-unquote. But at the end of the day... It would be taking Russia at face value. Uh, there are reports from some military experts that they may just be moving their troops around and say down towards Crimea, getting it away from the Russia-Ukraine border. So there's a lot to try and unpack here still. Okay. And so what is the state of like alert and readiness in the United States government in, in watching the situation right now? Well, the administration uh, briefed members of the Senate and the House yesterday to try and give some kind of congressional update to what the United States plan is going to be. We've already seen the U.S. move its troops out of the U.S. and in towards Eastern Europe through Poland uh, over the weekend, along with offering some financial assistance by way of a billion dollar loan uh, into Ukraine. Uh, we also know that the Biden administration, according to the Washington Post, has been uh, undertaking tabletop exercises should there be some kind of escalatory action by way of Russia. So 
the U.S. is doing everything it can to try to stay two steps ahead of Russia. The problem is, is that Russia is not giving any indication as to what its final intentions are going to be. So it just makes it that more, much more difficult to try and plan ahead. Okay. And so the White House, have they been, you know, getting together with foreign supporters, foreign allies to, to put the pressure on? Well, I mean, look, it's been there's been shuttle diplomacy uh, for the last couple of weeks with the United States in conversation uh, with allies within NATO, allies within the European Union. We've seen NATO and EU allies try to get together with uh, leaders from Ukraine and Russia. There is a foreign buildup here to try and put some kind of diplomatic end uh, uh, on the table here. Uh, we even heard yesterday the foreign minister of Russia say that talks really should continue because that is the foundation to a diplomatic end. But at the end of the day, if Russia doesn't want to talk or if Russia only sees its interests in the region uh, as the be-all and end-all of discussions, it's going to make it that much more difficult, no matter how many people from the West or from the U.S. or combined are trying to put pressure on a country that simply doesn't want to do anything that it sees is going to put its interests out of line. So how tense is that situation, would you say, right now when you with Biden officials? Well, I mean, look, it's tense in, in a couple of different ways. It's, it's tense for the fact that you have the Biden administration actively trying to diffuse uh, what could become a global crisis at the same time where the Biden administration is actively trying to defend its own agenda at home. And this is simply putting more pressure on a president that is watching his uh, popularity numbers go down on the regular here. So the more he's trying to deal with the global crisis and ignoring what's happening domestically, this is difficult for the White House. At the end of the day, though, there is such a U.S. interest in Europe, in Eastern Europe, and real realistically, with Ukraine and Russia relations here, uh, that this is an important move for President Biden to try to push back, to try to get what he can out of Russia, uh, and to try to de-escalate the situation. Because ultimately, a war between two countries, while NATO is not going to be there to defend Ukraine, there's a good chance here that NATO and the United States get sucked in, regardless of whatever happens. All right, Reggie, thank you for the update. Thanks. That's Reggie Giacchini, our global Washington correspondent. Now, the information that Reggie was talking about is that Russia's defense ministry has said that they have pulled back some of the military uh, you know, tanks, everything that they've had there, uh, they've, the, what they had deployed. They're pulling some of that back uh, that were bordering Ukraine and sent them back to their garrisons. Now, we're take, that's being taken as a sign that perhaps there's a little bit of hope here that things won't develop in the world possible way. And they're hoping, NATO is, that that's a, a sign that Russia might be trying to de-escalate the military standoff. But that's developing this morning, so there's more to come on that. On the Canadian front, Canada is sending about $7.8 million worth of equipment and ammunition to Ukraine. That was the announcement that the government made yesterday. And on top of that, uh, they're sending Ukraine a loan of $500 million uh, and helping in to, for them to use in this capacity. So there's lots of developments on that front. Keeping a close eye on it, we will have more for you as that situation develops. This is Mornings with Simi. There's a lot going on with the trucking industry all over North America, all over Canada, and here in BC. Just think about what they've gone through in the last six months. Heat dome issues, you know, highway problems, and you got the flooding situation, and now, of course, trucker protests going on. And in the midst of all that, the BC Trucking Association is still doing their day-to-day -day business and getting involved. In fact, they're even asking the province to move forward on legislation that would require all new heavy heavy-duty truck sales in BC to be at least low-emission vehicles by the year 2060. So as you can tell, they're busy. Joining us now is Dave Earl, president of the BC Trucking Association. Good morning, Dave. 
Good morning. Let's start, first of all, with that ask. Why now? Why do this? Well, we've been working on this uh, for for many years in terms of decarbonization of the industry and trying to find different ways to signal the industry, signal manufacturers and and the public to say, look, we're really serious about this. And and frankly, what is the art of the possible? Um, So we've been working with government and uh, we thought now was the time to put that stake in the sand. Okay, so what would you like to see then? What kind of trucks are we talking about here? Well, we're talking about zero emission or near zero emission vehicles. We're talking about highly efficient vehicles. I mean, these are the uh, the equivalent, if you will, of electric vehicles in the light vehicle world. Uh, we may see some hydrogen uh, certainly moving past the Coburn that's just starting to come on the road now, but uh, into new technologies and new powertrains. Uh, the effort, again, is to reduce the, uh, the GHG footprint. Okay, so what has been the response from the provincial government on that? Oh, we we talk with them and are engaged with them constantly on this file. So it certainly wasn't a surprise uh, to them. They're very supportive and uh, very much engaged in working with us. Now, Dave, I would imagine uh, most people these days, when they talk to you, they want to ask you know your thoughts on what's going on with the protests there. I mean, how much has that impacted what you do? Well, we and you mentioned that at the top, it's been a heck of a year. I mean, we've had literally fire, floods, and 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 you know the pandemic. Uh, so when we look at this, it's it's really disappointing to see uh, you know people breaking the law. Um, the right to protest is is just fundamental to everything uh, that we stand for as Canadians. I mean, the right to stand up and say you're not happy, um, but you cross a line when you start uh, you know causing damage to other individuals. Uh, we're just happy to see that the uh, the movement appears to be coming to an end, certainly in BC. Are you concerned with what this has done, you know, for the trucking industry and how people are thinking of it? I don't know, Simi. That, that's a tough one because really, um, you know, when we look at the industry, there's a third of a million people that drive uh, a truck with an articulation point, with a trailer in Canada. And in any population, any big number, you're always going to have a divergence uh, of how people think about any given issue. So I don't know that we're any different uh, as a population than anywhere else. Uh, we know our vaccination rates are the same as the general population, around 90%. Um, so this was certainly a movement that many people who uh, who happen to drive trucks uh, really got behind. Um, and again, that's their right. But when you cross that line and start disrupting people's lives in the economy, that's just not acceptable. Yeah, how much did that vaccination mandate impact trucking, you know, back and forth across the border? Because from the comments that I'd read, it was it was a, a minimal impact. Really tough to say, Simeon. The reason I say that is we know we lost hundreds of drivers out of that driver pool. Um, they just simply can't do that work anymore. Now, some drivers stepped in, some people re-entered the industry, we were able to juggle. But the biggest thing is that's all being clouded by what's going on in the broader right. supply chain. And, you know, So we're really not able to tease it out other than to say it's tight um, and it's expensive. So are things easing at all? How, is, how are trucks moving these days within BC, given all of the challenges? You know, we're doing remarkably well, and I have to give uh, just huge thanks to uh, the leadership of the Ministry of Transportation and all the road-building contractors that have worked so diligently and so hard uh, to repair our infrastructure. Uh, we're still a long way from where we were, but we've found ways to operate. It's taking longer to get things to where they need to be, but not as much as uh, as we were fearful of, and uh, we're getting better at it every week. So was the, would you say the floods were a greater challenge? Oh, than the blockades? Yeah. In British Columbia, absolutely. 
it's a very, very different industry in Ontario. Uh, in Ontario, in the manufacturing heartland, that border is basically transparent. There are goods that are made north and go south and south and go north, and they move on an hourly basis. So when you're working in a production facility, you literally uh, have the product come in the back door, make it to the assembly line, and it goes on the product right away. Uh, so when that doesn't happen, everything grinds to a halt. BC is a little different. We don't have that manufacturing base, so our goods that don't get here, yes, they impact production. Yes, they impact you and me. Uh, but an hour or two or eight uh, isn't going to be a, a, a problem we can't overcome. Okay, well, that provides great context. So thank you for explaining that to us. Uh, so then, Dave, in talking about this low emission situation, I'm just curious, if we're talking about low emission vehicles, are you talking about electric vehicles like trucks? Yep, electric vehicles. Uh, we will see the first heavy-duty, so the, the big stuff, uh, you know, heavy-duty tractors that are all electric come to B.C., we're hoping in uh, the second quarter of this year. Uh, we had a couple pilots uh, out here last uh, last summer. One of the things to me to keep in mind is these things aren't available for purchase widely yet. They're just not there. Um, the technology is in its infancy. You can't just make something twice as big, twice as heavy, and expect it to go twice as fast. It doesn't work that way. So we're a ways away from seeing these things become widely available, um, never mind economical. And that's why we looked at it and said, you know, we're going to need many, many, many years to try and embed this throughout the fleet. Okay. And what about the like charging issues too? Like how, how a, a truck that size, if it's electric, isn't that going to add time on a driver's route to charge those trucks? It does. But where these trucks are, where the electric trucks, we anticipate them working really well is in the local business. About half the industry, people that drive in that are home every night. You know, they do their work, it's a local run or a regional run, and they, their whole, it's called return to base operations, they're there every night. So it's easy. You drive the truck during the day, as long as you're under three or 400 kilometers on your route, you come back and you plug it in at the end of the day. The long haul is what's going to take longer. Uh, we just don't have technology either developed or really on the horizon, certainly the near horizon, that's going to be able to work uh, in that environment for the exact reason you say too much time to charge, not enough range, you know, but we'll get there. Interesting stuff. Dave, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Dave Earle is the president of the BC Trucking Association. This is Mornings with Simi. As you've seen in the news and been hearing about it, the statue of John Dayton, more commonly known as Gassy Jack, was toppled. This happened yesterday afternoon. It was during the downtown Eastside Women's Memorial March. Now, the video showed, you know, ropes being placed around it and then it falling. You heard a lot of people cheering. The thing is, that statue was already the subject of negotiations between the Squamish First Nation and the city of Vancouver about bringing it down. There is a pretty controversial history about John Dayton. So there was an agreement that that statue was going to come down anyway. So what did the mayor have to say about it? Well, many of the people on our shows uh, did try to reach out to him for a statement. And what he said was that the city had been in consultations with the Squamish Nation on the right way to remove the Gassy Jack statue and recognize the truth of John Dayton's harmful legacy. The statement goes on to say, while the statue was clearly a symbol of pain, violence, and trauma associated with colonialism and violence against Indigenous women and girls, today's actions, he said, uh, that removed it in a dangerous way undermines the ongoing work with Squamish Nation to guide the steps towards reconciliation. 
So we thought, let's find out how Squamish First Nation feels about that. That was the statement from the mayor. Joining us now is Wilson Williams, counselor and spokesperson for Squamish First Nation. Wilson, thank you for being here. Good morning, Simi. Where, where were you at in the process of the negotiations about the future of that statue with the city? Yeah, we we um, took lead on the this initiative, and we were in the process of um, not only fact-finding, but contacting descendants and family members of our late uh, ancestor, Madeline, who was the second Squamish nation wife of Gassy Jack. And that would have been the 12-year-old girl? Yes. Okay, so was there agreement then that this statue was coming down relatively soon? Yeah, and and we're awaiting an update administratively to come to the leadership table. And we're going to move forward from that in regards to, uh, of course, working in collaboration with the city of Vancouver and then moving forward and updating them on, in regards to uh, process at the same note, we wanted to walk softly in regards to, in respect to um, ancestors that are um, alive today and ensuring that we, you know, we call a SEMCO protecting them from, any uh, triggers of trauma or, or you know, hurt feelings. Right. So how did you feel then when you saw what was happening yesterday? Well, my first thoughts went to the family of the descendants, um, you know, that uh, in our community, uh, first and foremost. But, uh, you know, just learning more research, um, not only three years ago when this came up or t- just over two years ago, um, just getting educated more about the history of, you know, it's, it's more or less oral history that we've, we've passed down from our elders and our old people that uh, we're learning because there's not much documented history. Um, but the nation itself, we are mostly, um, our mindsets and our hearts were, were around our late ancestors uh, to protect the integrity of our families. So do you wish, like the people that where this happened yesterday, do you wish they would have waited? Yeah, in a sense. But, you know, looking back again, you know, and in, in through what I've been reading recently is, you know, it was a gift to the city, the statue, and it was on Valentine's Day in the early 70s. So I think, you know, um, we didn't see it coming, but you can just see the evolution of the symbolism, like you said, you know, it symbolizes the pain and trauma and violence associated with colonialism and the violence against women. So I think, you know, um, none of the nations or anyone on, uh, from the, our Squamish nation knew anything that this was going to evolve yesterday. But, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. I'm glad everyone was safe watching videos. It was close to... Um, coming down with a few people around it, but I'm just sure glad people were safe and uh, didn't get hurt. Now, you said you've been learning a lot about the history there over the last couple of years. So, Wilson, what have you learned? What can you share about us? What do you know? Yeah, so so, sort of the sweet and short version, you know, Gassy Jack Dayton was married to two Squamish Nation women. Um, one was an auntie, with an older auntie who died of an unknown unknown illness. And then Gassy Jack married a 12-year-old 
um, Squamish Nation member, which was her niece. Um, and three years later, she had left him um, on her own rights and stood up for herself. And I really, really appreciated talking to our elders um, in the community when this uh, came about a few years back, as we've we had many discussions with some of our knowledge keepers that that share this uh, history, because the woman that Madeline who had left him really had to stood her ground, and you know, this is what I'm taking away from yesterday's march in respect to. Uh, our murdered Indigenous missing women is, you know, our women have a voice and they need to stand up for themselves. And the story that's really coming out now is the strength Madeline had as a young teenager, but young woman who had to become pretty mature at a really young age. But it wasn't uncommon those days to marry that young, but uh, it's definitely, um, <clears throat> we're still fact-finding information in regards to, in relation to the story of, not only Gassy Jack, but we, we we honor we honor our women and Madeline herself. Is there more discussion, Wilson, to be had here, perhaps with you know the people on the march yesterday to talk more about this whole situation? Yeah, you know what you know what the first thoughts I had too is, and and with our leadership is in regards to you know you know when things get out of sight and out of mind, they sort of get forgotten and. You know, we're hoping to at least have some sort of, you know, if people are upset about that. I hope I was wishing we shared more of that story, but saying that to um, um, and educating people on the process that we did have. But I don't, you know, when it's out of sight, out of mind, I think people right. sort of overlook the fact that what process is actually occurring. Right. So when you look back, then, do you wish then perhaps that the whole process had been more open so people did know that, hey, there was a plan for this? Yes. And I think that's a stepping stone in regards to, you know, reconciliation and really working together collaboratively, in this case with the city of Vancouver and with Squamish Nation. Um, respectfully, all, you know, it integrates all First Nations in, in Canada here you know, to learn more about the true story and really find facts around it. But also, you know, we need that enhanced communication that works today in regards to educating people on right. um, history, the true history. Right. And even in the Indigenous community, right? Because clearly there were people within the community who felt this wasn't going fast enough. Yes, exactly. And, you know, for us, though, we had to walk softly because it directly affects the descendants and family that are, are connected to late Madeline and Gassy Jack. So we had to make sure our process, we didn't rush anything. We had to be culturally sensitive and ensure that, uh, you know, we did it the right way and, you know, culturally safe and respectful. That would bring dignity and healing to all involved. And we wanted to share that when we got there, but we just didn't share enough at the forefront in regards to the process. But, as I said, you know, it's tough when um, things get quiet for a couple of years while yeah. we're working a process and then this occurred. Well, Wilson, we appreciate your honesty this morning. Thank you so much for the discussion. Thank you, Timmy. Appreciate it. Yeah, Thank this, you. Wilson Williams is a counselor and spokesperson for Squamish First Nation talking about the complicated history of that Gassy Jack statue and essentially what got to that point yesterday. This is Mornings with Simi. 
It's hard to believe that after all of these decades, about 70 years, we're finally getting answers in Vancouver's 70-year-old cold case, Babes in the Woods. We just talked about this on the show last week. Eve Lazarus was with us. She's the host of the Cold Case Canada podcast, and she's been researching this case for a long time, too. And Eve, here you are back with us twice in one week because now we actually have answers. Isn't that unbelievable? It you is. Know, when we talked, I guess it was a few days ago, it looked like, you know, they were close. They'd actually got the DNA from the bone fragment, which was amazing. But who knew that it would be this quick? Okay, so what happened? Um, well, I only I, uh, know from um, the perspective of Ali, who had submitted her DNA. And she's a, a young woman, and she uh, was looking for a couple of lost great uncles. And she'd put in her DNA a few years back into the various sites, you know, like family and, and me and ancestry and, and those sorts of things. Um, and she was hoping that she'd find them. The story in the family was that, you know, that it was in the 40s and uh, the family were quite poor and there were three kids, three siblings. And um, the two little boys apparently were taken by social services. And that's all they knew. So she was hoping she'd find them still alive. Or maybe if if not them, at least you know their children or grandchildren or something. So you know it was a big shock when her mother was approached by um, Vancouver police detective and told you know that her uncles were, or her great uncles were actually the babes in the woods. Wow! So there's family pictures of these two boys. What were their names? Derek and David. And so what was the family story? You said they were taken by social services, but is that it? Well. Obviously, they well, if they were, you know, there was no record, apparently. At least police have told them, the family, that there was no record of social services having the kids. So that's a bit of a mystery. Apparently, there's a press press conference coming up soon, so I'm really hoping that, you know, a lot of these uh, questions will be answered then. Right, but obviously this is a, a long time ago, so getting the answers, even at this point, has been amazing. But how did... How did she deal with that at that point, Eve? Because that is quite a family story that you suddenly have. Well, Allie was devastated. Um, And neither she or her mother had heard of the Babes in the Woods, which, you know, was ironic. And she'd kind of gone on to my podcast to to get background and then had questions and and sort of contacted me. And, you know, we talked on the weekend about, um, you know, sort of doing her story. and, And that's sort of how it came up. Okay, so what are the next steps now then from what you understand? Well, presumably now they've identified the boys and know the family history, um, they can do some investigation on that. Like they know that the kids went to Henry Hudson Elementary, which is amazing. They didn't yeah. have that kind of information. And they know they were born in Vancouver. So I presume they've got their birth certificates now. Um, now they've got their names and things. So, you know, that was a huge step that no one knew. So it's interesting, but I guess back then they were always looking for a boy and a girl. And, of course, you know, these were two boys. But I guess there's still questions about that, Eve. Don't you think about even though it was two boys, how did nobody notice where they had gone? If they'd gone to Henry Hudson, didn't the school say, where did these boys go? Well, you'd think, wouldn't you? So I imagine that's something they're investigating. And they really went through all the records. And I know even, you know, sort of several years ago, they went back again and um, looked through all the school records and, you know, trying to find missing boys and, and whatever. And this never came up. Okay. And isn't it remarkable, though, what a close genealogical match 
this is. Because when you and I had talked last week, it was really more like, well, this family tree could be long and complicated and it could be a very distant relative, but it didn't turn out to be that distant at all. This is kind of the holy grail, isn't it? Uh, getting such a close relative or two of them because uh, having the, the half-sister, Diane, and um, and then Ali is the, the great-niece. So, But I think Diane's... Um, the, the half-sister, the older sister, that would have been a, a huge close match. And they're all um, apparently different fathers for the three kids. So it's, I'd be really curious again to find out whether they've been able to track the father of oh, them. Yeah. So that's another huge question, right? Right, so many of them still. And you know, something that really stuck with me when we talked to you just recently as well, Eve, is when you talked about, I mean, this was 1947, I think you said it was. And what I did, think so. Yeah. Another question that they'll probably be able to answer today, they'll be, you know, I'm hoping they'll be able to pinpoint that date, because that's always been a bit fluid. That's been sort of the best guess. Right, but you talked about what a difficult time that was, particularly for women, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, according to... Ellie and her family, they were very poor, which, you know, makes sense. If she was a single mother of three children, hard times. So, you know, the social, the kids you know, being taken by social services or whatever it would have been called back then kind of makes sense. It, it does, but such a huge mystery for so long. So from what we know then, Eve, just to recap here. So Allie is the great niece of these two boys? That's right, yeah. And so that would have been her grand. Her grandmother would have been their sister or their half sister. Half sister, yeah. So she was, um, they believe, about ten years old when the boys were taken or went missing. Obviously, they were killed. Um, that we know now. But um, so that goes with the timeline. And the game will, you know, hopefully find out how old they were. But it looks like, you know, the, the best guess was about six and eight, or six and nine, something right. like that. And that sounds like it's going to be pretty accurate. So what does she know about her great-grandmother then? Uh, Eileen. Well, she only died in 1996, and she was 78. And um, so she never met her. Ellie was two months old. There's a picture on my blog of it, the four generations, which is quite neat. And she's a baby, and um, Eileen's there, and her mother and um, grandmother. Wow, this is so remarkable. I bet. Did you ever think you'd see this day? No, never thought this would happen. You know, I kind of hoped when, you know, I found out that they got the DNA, which was a miracle in itself. Um, but uh, th- this was just great. And it's such, if Ellie had not put her DNA in and her grandmother's DNA, it wouldn't have been solved because they're the only people left in the maternal lineage. So, uh, you know, it's, you know I, to me, Ellie's the hero in this. Needle in a haystack mm. is what this is. Eve, send people to your blog. What is it so people can read more? It's just under my website, evelazarus.com. All right, I'm going to go read more right now. Eve, thank you. (laughs) Thanks for having me. That's Eve Lazarus, host of the Cold Case Canada podcast, and check out her blog, because yes, it's true. They have finally identified the babes in the woods after 70 years. Such a remarkable story. This is Mornings with Simi. Think back to when you learned how to swim. Did you go to swimming lessons? Was it at the local pool? Remember how you got your badge for one level and then you moved up to the next level? And that's a rite of passage, right? For so many children right across this country, we all did that at some point, no matter what our background was. 
And yet, right now, we are in danger of having a generation without necessarily experiencing those important steps. How to swim is something most parents, I think, recognize is that is absolutely essential for children out there. But the pandemic, the restrictions, it's become harder and harder for parents to find available pools, pools that are even open, or swimming lessons that have enough room for kids out there. What kind of an impact is this having? Joining us now is Dale Miller, the Executive Director of the Life Saving Society of BC. Dale, thanks for being with us. Good morning, Simi. Good to be with you. How big of a problem is this right now? What are you hearing from parents? Well, we know that there is a limit on the number of classes available, and Unfortunately, with every other industry, there's a shortage of staff in the pools, the lifeguards and instructors, and and that's really one of the things that is limiting access to swim lessons. And we are in touch with our uh, affiliated pools on a regular basis, and we know they're working hard to change that, uh, but it will be a process going forward here. So clearly there is, do you think, just a shortage of people? Like if, if parents want to get lessons for their kids, is that proving to be difficult? Uh, it is, and and even pre-pandemic, I mean, there was there was a shortage of pool space, and I think uh, you know every time a municipality goes to their constituents to say what is the next recreation facility you want in your community, it's usually a pool. So uh, the more pools we can get, the more staff we can get in those pools. Uh, then more lessons can be offered uh, to the public. And I understand that the Red Cross is getting out of the you know swimming lesson business. What does that mean for the Life Saving Society? Yeah, the Red Cross has made the decision to focus on their humanitarian efforts and uh, through 2022 move out of swim lessons. So the Life Saving Society already has a program that's been active in other provinces for 20 years. So we will be uh, taking that over and again in 2022 transitioning towards that. But I I don't think the participants will see uh, any major change there. So how can you hire more staff? Where are you going to find people? Well, we're we're recruiting as much as we can, and I know that each municipality is doing the same. Uh, we we really encourage youth to to look at this as a job. It's it's an excellent job. You learn some great life skills. Uh, it's very flexible hours, well paid, and uh, some excellent training that serves well in getting into um, other careers as well. So, we're really encouraging youth to to consider that as an option. You talked about how when people are asked, what do you want to see more of in your community? People always say swimming pools. Got a lot of rapid growth happening in our communities. Are the recreation facilities keeping up? Well, I think as as much as they can. You know, it it takes several years to uh, not only plan, design, fund, and and build a new pool, but... uh, you know, it's it's just a matter of staffing as well. So I think um, most municipalities are looking at a uh, uh, population growth and, and needing more recreation facilities generally. And uh, certainly pools are at the top of that list for most. And how important is this, Dale? Like when you talk about the significance of a child having swimming lessons, how important is that? Very important. And I was very glad to hear you say at the top of the uh, uh, component here that we uh, we see it as a rite of passage and and uh, and it is it's it's essential skills life skills I mean as as important as road safety and and bike safety and and putting on a seat belt in the car so we want to make sure that it's accessible to um, this generation as well so our concern is that without the lessons being fully available as they have been, um, 
there will be some children that will not be learning to swim. So um, in years to come, that could mean an additional number of drownings. We hope not. We haven't seen that yet, but there is potential. Right, because I guess that's the key here, isn't it, Dale, is that if kids don't learn at that young age how to swim, do you kind of lose them as adults? Is it just too difficult at that point to go back and say, we're going to teach you some basic water skills? Well, I mean, let's say that it is a two to three year gap. That's not a long enough gap that they can't go back and and learn the skills. Uh, There are even adult lessons, and we know that there are some adults who never learned as a child um, many years ago. So they can then enter those courses and, and learn to swim as an adult as well. But Definitely a two or three year gap is is a concern. So we're keeping an eye on that and doing whatever we can to uh, mitigate that uh, concern. Any advice for parents, Dale, out there who, you know, they will write me and they will say, oh, this is difficult. They've had such a challenge finding swimming lessons, if it's even possible. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, making sure that you're uh, keeping up to date on what's available and, and certainly as more staff are becoming available, more lessons will be available. Of course, there's capacity limits as well. Uh, we hope that'll change shortly, but uh, uh, that's an issue that that's being dealt with as well. So, But I, I think just generally, too, as we get uh, closer to swim season, just re-emphasizing all of those important points that we always say, uh, just the supervision of kids around the water, uh, wearing life jackets in boats, and uh, and just knowing your limits and, and making sure that you're ready in case something were to happen in the water. So there's no, like, secret way to make get in on those lessons that, that are available out there? <laughs> Not that I know of, Simi. If you find out from one of your... Uh, listeners what it is. I think a lot of people would love to know. All right. I would be happy to pass it on. Uh, but just quickly, Dale, then, so you said you're in the, I'd like to hire more staff. If you're able to do that, when do you foresee a time? Would it be in 2022 where perhaps you'd be able to expand the number of lessons that are offered? Well, it's up to each municipality. And I, I know very well that they're running as many courses as they can to train those lifeguards and instructors. And so it's, it's just an ongoing, continual process of training those staff, making sure that they are ready to keep the aquatic facilities safe and teach those lessons. And as soon as that happens, you'll see uh, more pool availability and and therefore more swim lessons available. Let's hope so. Dale, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simi. Dale Miller is the Executive Director of Life Saving Society of BC. They run many swimming programs, but I know because I've heard from parents on this, it is so incredibly difficult to find swimming lessons for young children. And listen, you talk about lack of availability on the lessons themselves, as Dale said, they're trying to hire staff, but also pools and rec centers that are closed because of the pandemic. Got to get them open, got to get kids back in those classes. You're going to lose an awful lot of kids who just will grow up not knowing how to swim if we don't make this happen.